Well, good morning. Christ is risen. Amen. It's good to be back at Sanctuary. Thank you to Ed and Brent, Preston, and all of you for your hospitality. I've been here enough that I'm starting to make some of you close enough that I would call you old friends or oldine, oldine friends in the process of becoming old friends. So thanks again for having us, having me. My wife is actually home in Tennessee, <clears throat> which reminds me, last time I was here, I think, I announced that we were going to have a baby, quite surprisingly, over Christmas. And now we found out that it's a boy. So that's good. You could, that's a good thing, right? And I floated a name early on once we heard that it was a boy. And I floated Godwin Ulysses. I'm glad you laughed. I shared that last night and no one laughed. Like I was serious about that. And of course, my wife shot that down. But we ended up, she ended up choosing the name. And she chose the name Emery, which was her great-grandfather's name, Emery. But my grandmother, who lives here, she's an old Pentecostal lady, the one with the, the beehive hairdo. I don't know if any of you have ever known these women. We call her Nan, and she's, she's the matriarch. She makes the decisions in the family. So we actually had to run the name by her. She has veto power, basically. And so I, I, she lives here in Oklahoma. So when I, on Friday night, I went to see her, and I said, listen, we, we found a name for the baby, but we're submitting it to you for approval. And she's not good at all at hiding her feelings at all. I mean, in any way. So I said, well, we've chosen Emery Harper Green. And she didn't say anything. But, of course, you can see it working on her face. She's very displeased. She's not saying anything yet, but it's obvious that this is not what she wants to say. So after about a minute of silence, I say, well, you're obviously not pleased. What's wrong with it? And she said, this is what she said. Well, I've just never heard the word, the name Emily for a boy. I was like, no, 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 not Emily. <laughs> Emery. So after that, Emery sounded great, right? So everything's up from, uh, from Emily. So it was, uh, the name has been approved and we can all breathe easy. But if, if you have some better name, you might catch me after service and I'll run that by Nan and see if, if she likes that. Psalm 27, if you want to turn there with me. <clears throat> Thanks, Chris, uh, for leading worship this morning. I, I really enjoyed that. I'm glad that you're able to be with us. Psalm 27, verse 4. Today is Trinity Sunday, and so I'm going to risk speaking about, about the Trinity. But let's begin with some reflection on this passage. We're all familiar with it. One thing I ask from the Lord, the psalmist says, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Mark that language of gazing on the beauty of the Lord. Gazing on the beauty of the Lord. If you read like I do, you can read past the words. You can read a psalm like this and be moved at it at a sentimental level without really reflecting on what it means to gaze on God's beauty. What is God's beauty? How do we gaze on it? How do, how do you gaze on God's beauty? And what is this beauty we're called to reflect upon in this way? And what I want to suggest this morning, that part of what the psalm is calling us to do is to reflect together on God's being as love. That God's beauty is God's being as love. God's being as the one who is eternally giving and receiving love. And to talk that way about God is to talk Trinity. 
That's what I want to share with you this morning. Now, some of you probably already reflected on this, even in just a couple moments that I've been up here. We don't often hear a lot of sermons about the Trinity. A sanctuary is, is exceptional in lots of ways, but in this way that it's not uncommon for you to hear sermons that are shaped by the Christian calendar. I mean, we said the creed just as I was coming up to speak this morning. But you know as well as I do that there are many churches, spirit-filled churches, Pentecostal and non-denominational churches, evangelical churches, where the Trinity is not preached at all, where they don't say the creed, where even though there's a kind of basic belief in the Trinity, I mean, if you go to their website, they believe in the Trinity, but it doesn't actually shape the way that they preach, the way they do pastoral care, the way that they pray, the way that they sing, in any kind of formative way. Why is that? If this is a doctrine about who God is and God's being, why is it that we don't talk about it? I'm sure we could list any number of reasons. I, I can think of three that I want to share with you quickly. The first one is I think that many of our churches were born in movements that were renewal movements. They were born in churches that did weekly celebrate communion. They did weekly say the creed. They did preach about the Trinity on Trinity Sunday. And yet something was missing from the dynamic of the spiritual life of that community. And as those people followed the leading of the Spirit and allowed the Spirit to overwhelm their lives, they found that there was this gap between the forms of Christianity, baptism and the Lord's Supper and reading Scripture, and the power of the Spirit in their daily lives. And over time, what happened is that they started to see a kind of contrast between formalism and ritualism and tradition and the power of the Spirit who's at work in our life. And so we started to form communities in which we did away with all of the tradition. I mean, we've all heard of this. We don't want the traditions of men. We want the power of God. We don't want religion. We want relationship. But one of the things that I think has happened over the last 30 and 40 years is we've started to realize that we needed those structures. By themselves, they don't bring life. But without them, we lose our sense of orientation. By themselves, saying the creed, doing the supper, having weekly readings from the scripture, by themselves, they don't bring us into the presence of God. But without them, we start to lose contact with whose presence it is we're in. How do we name this God? How do we know his character? How do we know how to speak about him rightly? So one of the things that I see happening on a, on a large scale is God bringing us back to reintegrate those traditions, those good traditions, with the living power of the Spirit. I believe it's possible to be Spirit-filled to the nth degree and be tra traditional in the best sense. And that that's something God is doing not only here in this community, but around the world. A second reason I think that we've kind of drifted away from talking about the Trinity is that it's difficult it's challenging, especially outside the classroom, in a church service. And sometimes we worry that people won't, just won't stay with it. Right? That no one, well, no one wants to hear a sermon about the Trinity. Some of you may be thinking that right now. Anyway, <laughs> no one wants to hear a sermon about the Trinity. I mean, that's not sexy, right? We need something that moves people. And yet, think about it for a moment. I mean, we're talking about God, and if God is God and I'm not making God, but God is God apart from me, then of course it's going to be difficult to talk about God. God is infinite. I'm finite. God is perfectly good. I'm broken and marred with sin. Of course it's going to be difficult for me to talk about God. And part of what we own when we try to talk about the Trinity is we own the fact that God is God and we are not, and that we're not making him up. 
that we're trying the best that we can to speak truthfully of a God who's beyond all finding out, whose ways are not our ways, whose thoughts are not our thoughts, whose promises for us are better than we can imagine. It hasn't entered into our hearts what he's prepared for us. So, of course, it's a struggle to speak about him faithfully. But there's something good about struggling to say it. And so this morning, as you see me struggling to say this, rejoice in the struggle. Rejoice in the struggle because there's something about buying into the struggle of speaking faithfully about God that shapes us and keeps reminding us, we didn't make this up. We didn't invent this. And thirdly, I think we've given up talking about the Trinity because it seems impractical. And many of our churches are dominated by the tyranny of the practical. We come to church expecting, maybe even demanding, to get something that is immediately applicable. I have a decision I have to make tomorrow morning. Pastor Ed, Pastor Brent, better say something that tells me what God wants me to do tomorrow when I show up at that meeting. We come to church with our hands open, ready to receive something, and we need it to apply to our lives in some kind of straightforward, easy-to-understand, immediate way. And the doctrine of the Trinity just doesn't work like that. And for those of us who stand on this side of this platform and this podium, we feel that pressure. That pressure to make sure we say something that actually integrates into your life in some kind of immediate way. But perhaps talking about the Trinity is a way of reminding us that part of being human is to enjoy God. St. Augustine said 1,600 years ago that human beings have things that they are to use, but they are to enjoy God and neighbor. That to be human is to know what to use and what to enjoy. And that once you confuse what's to be used with what's to be enjoyed, you start to lose what it means to be human. And one of the things that preaching about the Trinity does is it reminds us that life isn't all about what we do and what gets done to us. That at the heart of life is the joy of seeing God's beauty and seeing one another's beauty in the light of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And that there's a kind of relief that comes when we realize that it isn't all about the decision I have to make tomorrow. That whatever happens in that decision, God remains God and he remains beautiful. And if I can reflect on his beauty, then something changes deep inside of me, regardless of what decision I make tomorrow. And that humanizes us in the best possible way. So why did the doctrine of the Trinity develop? Historically, the doctrine of the Trinity developed because the early Christians had a serious problem. They're followers of Jesus who pray to Jesus and worship Jesus, and yet they believe that there is one God. And now they're caught. How can we pray to Jesus? How can we speak of Jesus as the full revelation of God if there's only one God? And they intuited that it wasn't enough to say that Jesus was God's greatest creature. This was the first Heresy is the technical term. This was the first doctrine about Jesus that the church had to reject. The idea that Jesus was God's first and greatest creature. That he was worthy of adoration. He was worthy of the greatest possible respect. But only God is to be worshipped. But the early church, led by the Spirit, recognized that that's not, that's not adequate. We can't speak that way about Jesus. Because if Jesus is a creature... If he belongs to the, the order of beings like you and I do, that's finite and limited and broken with sin, then even if he's the best creature, 
He doesn't know God fully. And that means he can't reveal God fully. You know, John 1 and Hebrews 1 both tell us that Jesus is the full expression of God. No one has seen God, John says, but Jesus Christ has made him known. Now, if he doesn't know God fully, then he can't make God fully known. And that means the gospel can't be trusted to tell us the absolute truth about God. So that perhaps behind the God of Jesus Christ, behind the face of Jesus Christ, there's a God who is not quite like Jesus. And the early Christians recognized, no, 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 that's not faithful to the message that the apostles have given us. Jesus fully reveals who God is, and therefore he must know God as God is. And only God can know God truly. And they also recognized that if Jesus doesn't reveal God truly, then our salvation isn't full. If Jesus is just a creature, then our salvation ultimately is creaturely, and it's not divine. And if it's not divine, then there are parts of our being that haven't been reached by what God has done in Jesus. But if he is fully God, then there is no part of our lives that has not been touched by this divine life and remade. So the doctrine of the Trinity developed, it wasn't in theological debate. It developed in churches struggling to follow the leading of the Spirit to make sense of how they prayed to this one they called Jesus and what that meant about God and what that meant about their salvation. And that's why we have to keep talking about it. Because this is the God who's claimed us, and this is the salvation we hold out in witness to the world. But not only the faithfulness of Jesus, but also the statement, God is love. 1 John chapter 4, two times, the apostle tells us, God is love. Double underline, all bold, is love. Not does loving things. God's being is love. But very early on, the church recognized, if we're going to say God is love, not that he just does loving things, then God has to be Trinity. Think about this. If God is solitary, if there's no communion in God, no Father, Son, and Spirit, then God is alone before there are creatures. And if God is alone before there are creatures, then that means one of two things has to be true. God needs creatures to love in order to begin being loving. And that means God's being's not love. Because there was a time when love wasn't possible for God. And sometimes, I mean, I don't know if any of you have ever heard this sermon. I've heard the sermon about how Satan was God's worship leader. Have you guys ever heard this? And he falls, and so God needs to replace him, and he creates all of us. It preaches really well in some context. It just, it just disastrously misrepresents the truth. <laughs> That's always a terrible thing for a preacher to recognize. You know, this works really well, but, man, it's just kind of, you know, it's wrong. <laughs> but, and, that, and this is that case, right, that, that God didn't need creatures. I'm going to say more about this in a moment. God doesn't need anything. The doctrine of the Trinity is a reminder to us that God did not create us because he needed us. That's good news. But here, and this is even worse. If God is solitary, if God is so alone in eternity before there are creatures, and yet we insist that he's loved, then that means God is the most selfish being imaginable. That God is narcissist to the infinite degree. That God is in love with God's own self. And that's also a perversion. So in order to say that God is love and does, not need, and does not need our love to become loving, then that must mean that before there is anything, there is God in love with God, but in a non-selfish way. 
And that requires a father loving the son, a son receiving the love, and a spirit receiving the love of the father and the son, and pouring out that love back to the father and son so that there's this constant dance of giving and receiving, of giving and receiving, of emptying out and receiving in that gives God's own life. And that is his beauty. The beauty of God is that God is already so loving that there is no selfishness in God. There's no self-absorption in God. That God's own being is the being that's revealed in Jesus Christ is the one that's constantly laying itself down for us. That's beautiful. That's the beauty we're called to gaze upon. And thirdly, the reason that the doctrine of the Trinity develops is to help us see the world rightly. If this is the character of our God then the only way to see what he's made rightly is to see it in ways that line up with who he is. And what I want to do in my last few minutes is just share with you quickly how I think the doctrine of the Trinity, which maybe for a long time has seemed to you kind of dry and unsexy, how the doctrine of the Trinity actually helps us understand what creation is, how redemption happens, and what our salvation looks like. So let's look first at Colossians 1.16. That creation is an excess of love. Colossians 1, 15 and 16, just for some context. The Son is the image of the invisible God. And again, if we're going to trust that statement, that he's the image of the invisible God, that he must be God. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things, everybody say all things. All things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, we get it again, have been created through him, and notice this last phrase, for him. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that you and I should think of creation as a gift that the Father makes to the Son in the Spirit. That there is creation because in eternity, a God who's perfectly satisfied in the life that God has in that love says, Son, I want to give you something. I want to give you creatures who will love you with the same love I have for you. Robert Jensen says it this way. It's as if in eternity, God the Father says to God the Spirit and God the Son, we're having such a great time. We really should let others in on this. That's why we exist. We exist not because God needs us, but because God loves the Son so much that he gives us as a gift. Our being is gift. This is why you should always be suspicious when people talk about what you deserve as hell. You exist as a gift. And you may reject what you deserve, but what you deserve is to be brought up into the life God meant from you, for you from eternity. What you deserve is to be received by the Son who has been given this gift by the Father through the Spirit. That's what you deserve. That's good news. We are free. We may reject what we deserve, but we weren't created to be destroyed. We weren't created to show God's wrath. We were created as tokens of the love that God is. I'm going to get Pentecostal. I'm going to take my coat off. Yeah, that's good. I like that. For 9 o'clock in the morning, you guys, you're, you're not drunk as I suppose, are you? <laughs> but this, this, is, this is what I want to show you. 1 Corinthians 15. 
We may be really Pentecostal and just go right on through the break between the services and we'll still meeting here. We'll tell them revival's broken out. First Corinthians 15, 24. Then the end will come, Paul says. After Jesus has been made Lord over all, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. Think about this. In the beginning, there is creation because God gives a gift to the Son. And in the end, once the Son has perfected creation, brought all of creation up under his lordship, what does he do? He gives it back. Our whole life is nothing more and nothing less than the exchange between the Father and the Son held up by the Spirit. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. Redemption works the same way. And I'm going to have to jump through some of this quickly. But if you, if you think on the large scale, if you think big picture, you can see that what the Father does, once sin enters into the world, once sin disrupts the way God made the earth to be and made us to be, the Father sends the Son and the Spirit to live out their mutuality on us and in us to bring us back to the life God meant for us. So that read one way, the Spirit is always working to make the Son possible. We read in Genesis chapter 1 that the Spirit broods like a mother hen over creation, trying to bring that broken, fallen creation back to the life that God means for it. And later in Genesis, use the image of striving. The Spirit is striving with humanity, striving to move us toward what God means. And when does the Spirit accomplish that? When the Spirit overshadows Mary and in her womb is formed the one who is perfectly human. The one who is human to the fullest degree. The one who is going to show us this is what God meant humanity to be. And what does the son do? He grows up under the leading of the spirit. The spirit is poured out upon him. He's launched into his ministry. He lives that life of perfect human yieldedness to the father's love. And when he ascends, what does he immediately do? He pours that same spirit out upon us so that that same spirit who was brooding over creation and striving with humanity and overshadowing Mary to bring about Christ now is brooding over our lives and striving over our lives and overshadowing our lives to shape in us the image of Christ. Because when we come into the fullness of Christ, we not only know God the way God knows God, we're fully human and we are what he meant us to be. That's the way redemption works. That's the way redemption works. And we see how when God's love confronts the brokenness of our world, the hostility, the ingratitude, the fear, the lack that's in our world, what God does is simply take all of that up into gift. Think about the story of Jesus. Think about stories like the multiplication of the loaves. Here are these people with nothing to eat. They are experiencing lack, which touches on all human experience. At some point, we all lack what we need. And what does Jesus do? Does he rebuke them for not planning ahead? Does he send them off to someone else to find what they need? What does he do? Bring me what you have, and I'll make a gift of it. Think about what he does with the woman caught in adultery, the men caught throwing rocks. Does he throw the law at her? Does he rebuke her for her sins? Without in any way condoning her sin, he makes a gift of the moment. And something about the gift of God takes even our sin 
our brokenness, our rebellion, our lack, our ingratitude, and it transfigures it. Think about what he does with Zacchaeus. I mean, we can keep talking these stories because this is what Jesus does in every situation. Zacchaeus is a man whose life is shaped by greed. And yet Jesus stops under that tree. I mean, Zacchaeus is not a wholehearted follower of Jesus. I mean, he's hiding in a tree to get a glimpse of Jesus. And Jesus stops under that tree and says, come down. I want to go to your house. And then he says, I love this, how the text reads. And Jesus said to him, this man is a son of Abraham. So Jesus says it to him, but he says it in that, that third person so that everybody around knows, I want you to know what I think about Zacchaeus. This man is my friend. We would have rebuked the sin. We would have confronted the greed. But Jesus understands that there's something about love that's stronger than death. There's something about life that's stronger than death. There's something about light that overcomes the darkness. There's something about gift that's greater than even our ingratitude and our greed and our fear and our lack. And redemption is nothing more and nothing less than God continuing to give until that gift overwhelms all in us that resists it. And that's what our salvation is. Our salvation is coming to give and receive love the same way God exists as giving and receiving love. Salvation is not just saying the sinner's prayer. It's not just coming to church. Salvation is having the character of your life made like Jesus. This is amazing correlation between two passages. I'll just hint at it, and you can read it this afternoon on your own. Romans chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians 2, Paul is dealing with similar themes It kind of inverts the image. In Romans 8, he talks about God searching the spirit. That God knows the mind of the spirit. The spirit who's always interceding for us when we don't know how to pray. God is searching the mind of the spirit. Beautiful passage. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul's dealing with a similar theme. But there he says the spirit searches the deep things of God. And the spirit knows the mind of Christ. So in Romans 8, it's the Father searching the Spirit and knowing the mind of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2, it's the Spirit searching the Father and knowing the mind of Christ. Because here's what both the Spirit and the Father find in their searching. They find Jesus. When the Father searches the Spirit's mind, what he finds there is the Son made human for us. And when the Spirit searches the depths of God, in the depths of God, what the Spirit finds is the Son made human for us. Because as Philippians 2 tells us, what God wants for us is that this mind would be in us. That we would be like Christ. That what we were predestined for is not heaven or hell, but to be conformed to the image of the Son. And our salvation is when that image that the Father finds in the Spirit and the Spirit finds in the Father comes true in our life. That's good news. That's beautiful. Just a few months ago, my mother-in-law and father-in-law came to visit us in Tennessee, came from Oklahoma to visit us. And as grandparents do, they came laden with gifts. They're like the Magi. And my kids... (laughs) See, I speak so well of my in-laws, don't I? They, but they came from the West, so they're kind of inverted magi, I guess. But, sorry, this is getting away from me. So the, they show up at the door laden with gifts, and my kids, my daughter at least, is prepared to return a gift. Zoe, she's, she's eight, and she's very conscious about wanting to res- respond. And so she's there at the door waiting to receive her gift and to give. And my son, Clive, who's more like I am, he, he hadn't thought that far ahead. 
<laughs> but he sees Zoe giving her a gift. And I'm watching all of this, of course. Because the grandparents aren't there to see us, right? And they're there to see the grandkids. And so I'm at the, on the margin watching this. And I see it happen. I see him processing, see him aware that he's received a gift and now it's time to give a gift and he doesn't have one. And he darts out of the room. I hear his little feet running up the stairs. I hear him overhead in his room and down he comes 30 seconds later and he's carrying a book that his grandmother had bought for him. That's beautiful enough already. He's going to give back the gift she gave him. But again, I can see on his face, he loves this book. I mean, I read it to him often. He doesn't want to give it back. But at the same time, he wants to give this very gift because it's the one he doesn't want to give back. He's aware enough that there needs to be some kind of sacrifice involved. And so I'm standing there and I'm watching him. I'm watching the, conflict, the, the confliction play out on his face. But he gives it to her. And he says, Grant, I want you to have this. And she kneels down beside him and puts her arm around him. And she says, oh, Clivey. She said, I know what we can do. I know you love reading this book, and I'm so glad you gave it to me. But here's what I would like. Let's keep it here. It'll be mine, but let's keep it here. And whenever I come from Oklahoma, we'll read it together. Do you know what happened to me in that moment? I caught a glimpse, just for a second, of the kind of love God offers us. That if we will just make the smallest, most childlike effort to give back to this God, he'll kneel down beside us and put his arm around us and say, oh, let me, let me show you something. Because what God ultimately wants is for the difference between giver and receiver, between the one who offers and the one who receives, to finally just meld together into one. Because in that moment... You could no longer tell neatly who was giving what to whom. Who was enjoying it more, grandma or grandson? Who was getting the most out of that moment? They were one. And that's what God wants for us. That if we will yield back in that spirit of giving, he wants to make it so that you can't tell where the head ends and the body begins. You can't tell the bridegroom from the bride because they've become one flesh, that he is our God and we are his people and he dwells with us and his spirit is in us and the very breath we breathe is the life that God is and the very love that we love with is God's own being and you no longer can tell who's the giver and who's the receiver. That is the kind of beauty we need to reflect upon and not only reflect upon it, but reflect it to others. Because when we enter into that giving, when we give like God gives, like my son in that moment, frail and limited as it was, he participated in reflecting to me what God's love is. And I want to leave you with this word of encouragement. Even the smallest response you give to God, the faintest whisper of a response of love, you can't imagine what that does to people around you because it awakens something in their depths that reminds them of who this God is who made them. God, thank you for the gift that you give us in giving us your life. Train us, God, to enter into this giving. God, you've invited us to participate in your life. God, help us to lean into that with everything that we have. 
so that we can reflect your beauty and be transformed, be beautified with your beauty, made glorious with your glory so that this world may see you are good and your love endures forever. Amen.